All right. Well, we are, we're going to finish chapter 1 today in our trek through the book of Ephesians, uh, the, the letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus. Now, the purpose of, the, of this letter, which we've already seen in the first 14 verses, is to remind us, the church, of who God is, what he has done, and who we are in relation to all of that. Now, this passage, also like last week's passage, is just one um, unpunctuated, just blob of Greek. We're not going to go through it the way that we did last week, but uh, this is another time of Paul just, he's just writing and there is no punctuation at all, and I just think that's awesome. It really does nothing for us today other than I just think it's awesome. Um, now, God is presented as, in this book, in this letter to the church in Ephesus, to this to the church in Billings, Montana, God is presented as the author of, of a great plan of reconciliation. A plan that's manifest in the inbreaking of Jesus as the Son of God, God with us, that took on the sin of the nation of Israel, and as king of that nation, representative of that nation, he paid the price of all of that nation's sin on the cross. After this substitutionary sacrifice, Jesus then displays the highest power ever seen in the history of the world with the resurrection and the victory over death. What we saw in the beginning of this study as we started this a few weeks ago is that God then adopts us into that family. He adopts us into that redemption. And in that adoption, he calls us his. He calls us his children, and he makes us full members of the family of God, full heirs, the wild branch grafted into the tree of the nation of Israel. He adopts us as his very own. Now, Paul is reminding the readers of this letter, the church in Ephesus in 60s AD, and us, the vineyard in Billings today, that this is our story. And from this story comes our identity. Not found in what others say about us. Not found in what we say about ourselves. Not found in what we have done. What we've done in the past. Not found in what we've done, what we do now. Not even found in what we have. Our identity is found in the reality that we are adopted children of the living God. The identity of God that flows from this is an identity that is defined by unfailing love. Created us, pursued us, sacrificed for us, all with the goal of seeing us adopted into relationship with him. The story could end there because that's pretty cool, but the story doesn't end there. In fact, not only does the story not end there, that's just the introduction into the story. Created us, pursued us, sacrificed sacrificed for us with the goal of reconciliation. That's the beginning of the story. That's the introduction. When we realize the true identity that we find in the first few verses of this letter, 
When we realize that true identity, everything changes. When we realize our identity, everything changes. Everything we were unravels as everything we are called to beckons us to new life. After the realization of true identity, scripture like like Mark 8.34 that says, Then, calling the crowd to join his disciples, he said, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. Take up your cross and follow me. We realize our true identity, scripture like that, leaves the realm of the lofty goal and it becomes the function of everyday life. Giving up our own way becomes less difficult because we see meaning drained from ambition, meaning drained from worldly success, meaning drained from our own rights and insisting upon our own rights, meaning drained from being worried about our own well-being. And we take on the mantle of royalty and children of God. We see meaning drained from the goals, the, the goals of culture. We see meaning drained from what others say about us. We see meaning drained from what we say about ourselves, from what we've done, from the things that we have. We see only the thing that means anything is adoption. Adoption we've experienced. Adoption offered to us by the living God. Because we are now in the family of God, we see the offering to work in the family business. Our loyalty to Jesus that led to faith and faith that led to adoption is demonstrated by our love for others. In the passage that we are considering today, this end of chapter 1, Paul prays for the readers of this letter. He prays for us. And then he reminds us of the family business. See, this reminder, though, this reminder is important. It was important to the church in Ephesus. It's important to the church in Billings, Montana. Throughout the centuries, people have wanted to enjoy the inheritance of a member of the family, but have not wanted to step fully into the reality of what being an heir truly is. False loyalty to Christ is worship without love for others. False loyalty to Jesus is something that every generation has struggled with. Monks, hermits, and isolationists abandoned community and the activities of ordinary life in order to seek relationship with Jesus alone. They do this because then they're, they're, they, can, they can experience God unencumbered by the weight and the burden of other people. Unencumbered by the burden of fellow believers. That sounds nice. But that's not loyalty to Jesus. We can see that in our culture today. Those that, that, that can find Jesus wherever they go and, and, uh, and they can worship him uh, by themselves wherever, wherever they are without the body of Christ, without loyalty to 
the church, without loyalty to others, without love for others, it's false loyalty to God. Others with false loyalty look like the heresy hunters of the Spanish Inquisition. You knew that there was a geek history thing coming, um, and here it is. Um, the heresy hunters of, of the Spanish Inquisition, they, they sought out those that did not agree with them. They sought out those that, that interpreted things differently. They thought out those that did not have the same belief that they did, and in their loyalty to Jesus, they killed him. Persecution and murder, I would argue, is false loyalty to Jesus. You can quote me on that. We see false loyalty masquerading as the church all around us. But this church looks more like the chapel of hate from Robert Buchanan's novel, The Shadow of the Sword, where, where some... Uh, that profess to be followers meet to curse those that have wronged them. Where people that, that profess to follow Jesus meet together not only to curse the people that have wronged them, but, uh, but curse the people that disagree with them. Robert Buchanan calls this the chapel of hate. William Barclay makes this comparison and says this of the chapel of hate. He says, a chapel of hate is a grim conception, and yet are, are we always so very far away from it? We hate the liberals or the radicals. We hate the fundamentalists or the obstructionists. We hate the men whose theology is different from ours. We hate the Roman Catholic or the Protestant, as the case might be. We make pronouncements which are characterized not by Christian charity, but by a kind of condemning bitterness. We would do well to remember every now and then that love of Christ and love of our fellow man cannot exist without each other. False loyalty begins with the seemingly sound intent. False loyalty starts from a place that sounds good. False loyalty starts from a place of a, of a true desire to be with God, the desire to seek and define truth. But when the outcome of that seeking is not a replication of the love and grace that God has for us, false loyalty is exposed for what it truly is. False loyalty is a failure to abide in the message that flows from Mark 8, 34. An attempt to hold on to my will, to only take up the parts of God's will that align with me, and through self-delusion and self-righteousness, expect to enjoy a full inheritance. Paul presents true loyalty to Jesus in this passage we consider today. And the outcome, this is, I love this, the outcome of true loyalty to Jesus is the church. Loyalty to Jesus, finding our true identity in the plan of God, results in believers, faith havers, becoming and operating as the church. What we're going to see today is twofold. We're going to see power, and we're going to see presence. We will see the most awesome display of power that the world has yet seen. And I say yet seen because Jesus is coming again. We see the most awesome power in the resurrection. A power that, that has never been. We see a call to acknowledge that power. And develop loyalty to that power by extending grace and love 
to each other. So let's pray before we get into Ephesians chapter 1. Holy Spirit, would you come? Make us aware of your presence here. I pray, Lord, that that you would rest upon us now. I pray that that you would beckon us closer to you. I pray, Father, that, that your word would come alive, that we could see that this isn't an ancient letter, that this is living word. And so, Father, would you open the living word to us now? In Jesus' name, amen. All right, here we go, finishing chapter 1 of uh, the book of Ephesians. Uh, We're starting in verse 15. Ever since I heard of your strong faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for God's people everywhere, I've not stopped thanking God for you. I pray for you constantly, asking God, the glorious Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to give you spiritual wisdom and insight so that you might grow in your knowledge of God. I pray that your hearts will be flooded with light so that you can understand the confident hope he has given to those he called, his holy people, who are his rich and glorious inheritance. The motivation for Paul's prayer as he begins this letter is what he knows about the church in Ephesus. Strong faith in Jesus leads to love for God everywhere. Or, I'm sorry, leads to love for God's people everywhere. Their strong faith isn't what he's thanking God for. It's the outcome of that faith in the church in Ephesus' love for people everywhere. Their relationship with Jesus results in this love of God's people. In this prayer, Paul acknowledges and supports. He acknowledges and supports that faith and that love in his request for spiritual wisdom and insight and an increase in the knowledge of God. Knowing God has, transform, has a transforming effect. He knows it from his story. He also knows it from the story of the church in Ephesus. Knowing God has a transforming effect both spiritually and morally. When we are transformed spiritually and morally, it binds us together in bold actions for God. Not knowing God in the present will result in dissatisfaction and in degeneration into wickedness. And the future brings true alienation from God and from community. But knowing God brings us to the place of bold action together. Not knowing God, but knowing about God, however, leads to false loyalty. So, the effects of knowing God. One is spiritual transformation, being transformed from death to life. We see this in John chapter 17, verse 3, when the gospel writer John says, And this is the way to have eternal life, to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ the one you sent to earth. In Romans 6, 23, we see, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life 
through Christ Jesus, this movement from death to life through faith in Jesus. Again, in 1 John chapter 5, verses 11 and 12, this is, and this is what God has testified. He has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have God's Son does not have life. What Paul is praying for is an increase in our knowledge of spiritual transformation so we can better understand the import and the result of, of God being the center of our order. It is life and death. Paul is praying that we would not just know that this is a theory or a concept, this movement from death to life, but this is the true outcome of faith. Another true outcome of faith in Jesus is moral transformation from from, uh, evil to good. Proverbs 2, verses 1 through 6 says, My child, listen to what I say and treasure my commands. Tune your ears to wisdom and concentrate on understanding. Cry out for insight and ask for understanding. Search for them as you would for silver. Seek them like hidden treasures. Then you will understand what it means to fear the Lord, and you will gain knowledge of God. For the Lord grants wisdom from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Paul writes in in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, We destroy every proud obstacle that keeps people from knowing God. We capture their rebellious thoughts and teach them to obey Christ. And it's this movement from from evil to good again in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. God's will is for you to be holy, so stay away from all sexual sin. Then each of you will will control his own body and live in holiness and honor, not in lustful passion like the pagans who do not know God and his ways. And to the church in in Philippi, Paul writes, I pray that your love will overflow more and more, and that you will keep on growing in knowledge and understanding. For I want you to understand what really matters, so that you may live pure and blameless lives until the day of Christ's return. May you always be filled with the fruit of your salvation, the righteous character produced in your life by Jesus Christ. For this will bring much glory and praise to God. This prayer that Paul offers for us is also not just a prayer for, for uh, a, the giving of, of this wisdom and knowledge, but this is also a prayer for hope. A prayer to be flooded with light, a light that testifies to our inheritance the hope that comes from, from the overwhelming waters of the flood of God's love leads us, his people, to a boldness of action. Spiritually transformed, morally transformed, we together are called to boldness of action for Jesus. In Psalm 138.3, we see the psalm writer say, As soon as I pray, you answer me. You encourage me by giving me strength. What's that strength for? We see in Proverbs 28.1, the wicked run away when no one is chasing them. But the godly are as bold as lions. Acts chapter 6. Awesome display of boldness that comes from the transformation 
of the knowledge of unfailing love. Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed amazing miracles and signs among the people. But one day, some men from the synagogue of freed slaves, as it was called, started to, to debate with him. They were Jews from Cyrene, Alexandria, Sicilia, and the province of Asia. None of them could stand against the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen spoke. Stephen soon becomes a martyr in his boldness as he proclaims the word of God, transformed by the Spirit. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12 says, Since this new way gives us such confidence, we can be very bold. What Paul's writing to the church is, With this inheritance, with this identity, with the knowledge of who we are, with the knowledge that we are adopted by the king, we can be very bold. The lies of identity have been stripped away. True identity comes, true transformation, and with it, bold action. Hebrews verse 13, or chapter 13, verse 6 says, so we can say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, so I will have no fear. What can mere people do to me? What can mere people do to me? Through this transformation of knowing our identity, we can stand with boldness together and say, what can mere people do to me? A reason for hope. The reason for assurance in God that he is who he says that he is flows from the power of God, a power displayed in victory over death. Back into our passage today, starting in verse 19, I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. Now he is far above any ruler or authority or power or leader or anything else. Not only in this world, but also in the world to come. The definition of anything else is... Anybody want to guess? Anything else. The power is real. But more so, not just the power is real. The power is available. Paul is pointing to the reality that not only has creation testified to God, not only has the miracles of God demonstrated power, nothing has demonstrated the depth of that power more than the victory over death achieved through the resurrection of Jesus. What we can pull from that is a very simple concept. Power from God brings life. In Paul's time and in ours, people failed to grasp the power that's available to those that love God and are called according to his purposes. The very same God that raised Jesus from the grave, seated him in the place of honor at his right hand in the heavenly realms, is the same God that goes before each of us into the places that we are called in the time between the Sundays. The same God that raised Jesus from the dead is the same God 
that will go before us tomorrow and set conditions for what we will find in the places that we're called to. That same power that brought victory over death is the same power that intercedes for us. How about this? The same God that defeated death hears your prayer. How easy is it to forget that? The same God that defeated death not only hears your prayer, but is concerned for you and for what you are praying about. The same power that raised Jesus from the grave is the same power that hears your prayer. As N.T. Wright points out in his commentary in the book of Ephesians, this doesn't mean that we are conjurers performing spectacular tricks to impress people. It means that God is putting secret sins to death, developing us into people of prayer, and leading us to loyal faith that results in spreading his love through our love for others. This power is real, this power is available, and this power is active. But where is it active? I'm glad you asked. Ephesians chapter 1, 22, finishing out the passage for us today. God has put all things under the authority of Christ and has made him head over all things for the benefit of the church. And the church is his body, is made full and complete by Christ, who fills all the things everywhere with himself. The power is real, the power is available, the power is active, and the power is active in the body of Christ. Just as the body of Christ had the power when he walked on the earth, the the body of Christ remains in that place of power now with Christ as our head. Just as, as the body of Christ suffered, the body of Christ continues to suffer together with power available that brings life. This power is active in the church. This is the plan of God. This is what knowledge of him leads to. This is what loyalty looks like, finding our place in the body of Christ. That is true loyalty. Jesus as the head of the church as the imaginer, as the motivation, and we together as the activity. Just as Jesus had a real body in ministry on earth before his death, he has a body on earth now. We join him in the mission. We join him in the suffering We join him in the joy. We join all of this when we recognize our identity as the adopted children of the Most High. But not just when we see our reality as the adopted children of the Most High, but when we see the same in others. And we work together with those for his will. And when we work together for his will, we see our will dissipate in the face of the love that we experience from God. You hear me talking often about the center of order. 
this concept that we've kind of adopted to, to really uh, define the things that we worship, the things that, that drive our, our activities, our actions, our thoughts, our words, all of this. You, you hear me often talk about the center of order. This is exactly what I mean. When we say placing God at the center of our order, it is functioning in this, this closing of chapter 1 in the letter to the church in Ephesus. God at the center, center of order means that I, that you, that we together, all of us, we know our role and we are functioning in that role together. With Christ as the head, with Christ as our filling, we are made complete when we together are working as Christ's body to fulfill the mission of God. When we're complete, when our identity is known, and when our identity is recognized, we are loyal to the giver of identity. And that loyalty is demonstrated by action. William Barclay puts it like this. However orthodox the church is, however pure its theology, and however noble its worship and its liturgy, it is not a true church in the real sense of the term unless it is characterized by love for its fellow men. Paul's prayer for us is an increase in knowledge of our identity and a call to bold action to act in and with our identity. So Vineyard, as we turn back to worship this morning, we can check our loyalty because we know that the calling is not to be a group of individuals that meet in the same place in the same time every week. The calling is to take our place in the body, to be the activity, to be the plan of the reconciling God. When we are made complete together, filled with Christ, we are in the family business, and there's work to be done. Amen?